Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Today, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with Gene Monterostelli. Gene is a different kind of expert than I typically interview here, but he had a absolutely fascinating story. I'm looking at the interview, and it's clocking in somewhere around like 55 minutes. And I got to tell you, it was a super interesting 55-minute conversation. Gene talked about everything from content marketing, keeping a, a regular, consistent output of content marketing. If you look at Gene's site, there's something like over 800 uh, combination of blog articles and podcast episodes. The guy's like a machine when it comes to consistent output. We talk about that. We talk about his experience with trying to sell his services when they were described in terms of what he did and how that was different from how he sells things now, where he talks about the results he achieves and his specialization journey. We touched on that. There's there's more. There's just This was, again, for me, a super fascinating interview. Again, Gene is, uh, like I said, not the the type of person I'm typically speaking to here because he's not a, a self-employed software developer, although before he got into his current career, that's what he did. He was a, a software developer. Anyway, enough uh, trying to get you as excited as I am about this conversation. Um, super interesting conversation. Thanks a lot to Lee for making this connection with Gene, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gene Monterostelli. Gene Monterostelli, welcome to the program. Hello, how are you today? Doing good. Thanks for taking some time to be here. Um, you and I met moments ago and I think are going to have an interesting conversation about how you arrived at your current specialization. So let's start with the standard question, who are you today and what do you do today? Yeah. So who am I today? That's <laughs> on some levels, that's a complicated question. Um, so I, I have been self-employed for 21 years. And one of the things that has always been really paramount to me is that I have always been building a lifestyle. I haven't been necessarily building a business. Uh -huh. uh, the work that I've done working on my own, um, I've loved. Much of it has been mission driven. But at the end of the day, it is also a means to an end so that I could have the life that I want. Currently, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I've been living here in Brooklyn for five years, and the work that I primarily do, well, I take that back. The way I talk about my work is that I say that I help small business owners to eliminate self-sabotage so that they can take the action that they want. And so it kind of comes down to two pieces. One is helping people to strategically position themselves to make the choices that they want and take the action that they want. And then once you know what to do, you know how to do it, you have all of the resources to do it. Sometimes we still don't take action. And so when that happens, I'm able to help them to figure out what is the emotional root behind the reason why they aren't taking action. Sometimes it could be something as simple as I can't ask for sales because salespeople are sleazy. And if I ask for sales, I'm going to be a sleazy salesperson. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes it's a lot deeper. It could be an actual childhood issue or a childhood wound that is showing up in a really specific way in the business setting of their life. And you also, I think, you have another business too. Am I right about that? Absolutely. So for the last 21 years, um, myself and a buddy of mine have combined juggling, sketch comedy, drama, and storytelling. And we travel all over the U.S. and Canada um, working with high school and middle school students. Oh, interesting. Okay. Actually, t tell me about the tapping Q&A. That's, that's... Absolutely. Yeah. And so then the tool set that I use with my clients um, is an acupressure modality mm -hmm. uh, about 30 years ago, they started putting acupuncture under the scrutiny of traditional Western medicine mm -hmm. to just see what was effective and what wasn't. Um, a generous reading of that would be, we're looking for new tools. A cynical reading of that is, we're trying to prove that this is a bunch of bunk. Yeah. Um, in the process of doing that, what they discovered is they discovered that not only was acupuncture very effective for pain management, it was also effective for dealing with fears and phobias, and it was really good at dealing with depression. So there was um, Dr. Roger Callahan, who lived in Southern California at the time, said, this is really interesting, and I don't want to go to acupuncture school. I wonder what would happen if we started tapping on these points. Based on his experience, he created something called Thought Field Therapy, and the very first demonstration that he kind of published was a woman that had a fear of water that was so severe she could not shower. Hmm. After using the protocol for 25 minutes, she jumped into a swimming pool. Hmm. And so um, it was actually 11 years ago this week, I created a website talking about my experience with that particular protocol. And so the website Tapping Q&A is a general information site, but I started as a generalist. I basically would work with anybody who had an issue that the tool set could be used for. About five and a half years ago, I made the decision to specialize in a really specific way so that when I am working with small business owners, I am using this really specific protocol. But you'll notice that when I talked about what I do, I didn't lead with the modality. I led with the specialization and the struggle people have. So the resources still exist, and I keep adding to them in a general way, and I have products and services that I sell from that. But the specialized version is how I work with small business owners. Okay, this is, this is great. There's so, so many directions for it to, to go from here. By, by the way, have we, have we gotten through the, all the list of uh, the businesses? You got, you got any others hiding under the carpet there? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, run a, I run a podcast network, but that is more a hobby than anything else. Got it. Okay. I am just giving you a hard time. I, I was expecting, I, I knew about two of those businesses and, yeah. and there, there were more. So let's roll the clock back and talk about that generalist to specialist transition. There's quite a few things I want to follow up on, but I want to start with that. Absolutely. So, um, so what was, as a generalist, what did, what did things look like for you in your business? So basically when I was a generalist, I was working on an hourly model. Um, I was dependent upon people coming to me uh -huh. because I was leading with a modality. I was saying, I do this tapping thing. If you already know this tapping thing, then you're going to be interested in me because I do all of the things that the tapping thing does. Okay. And what I realized is there were 
two problems with that. The first problem was it was really difficult for me to communicate with people who weren't already familiar with the modality that I was using. Do, do you, because can, can yeah. I stop you there? Do you have any memorable like failure stories of like trying to I don't know, sell it or persuade somebody or get... Well, yeah, absolutely. So basically, if I turned to you and I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to tap on these nine points on your body. And when we tap on these nine points on your body, it will get rid of your cravings. It will deal with your physical pain. It will deal with your phobias. And like, as you keep listing all of these amazing things that it does, mm -hmm. and it looks so silly it becomes less and less believable uh -huh. because it sounds like snake oil. Yeah. Because first of all, it seems silly that tap, and this was, you know, well before we have the scientific research where we have today, where we can actually see the brain function changing and we can see cortisol levels dropping in the body. Mm -hmm. It was just because I was talking about so many things and such a wide variety of things, at a certain point, people just started looking at you like you were crazy. <laughs> so they were either really well disposed because they were used to doing what we would call wacky complimentary medical things. Yeah. Or they were just like, there's no way I'm going to look at you and think of you in this way as a serious person. Okay. So because I was leading with the modality, I was in a situation that only those disposed to the modality would listen to me. So there's probably it's probably hard to say how, what percentage of the, you know, human race that would be. Are we talking 1% or it, this is not a mainstream thing, right? It certainly was not a mainstream thing 11 years ago. Okay. It's now in a situation where there's all sorts of work that's being done with PTSD. They're doing work at Walter Reed. They're, I mean, like, so there are places where it is now something. But, okay. I mean, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when I was first bumping into the protocol, it was just wacky. I okay. mean, because it is like, even when I'm teaching people today, I'm like, this is going to look really wacky because it does. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was smaller than a 1% of the population. Like it was minuscule in people's understanding. And so I, in those circumstances, I was dependent upon someone else finding their way to the protocol and being engaged with it before they would even entertain working with me. So how long were you in that mode of, you know, uh, methodology first or protocol first um so if the website is 11 years old this week i would say probably half of that time oh um H happy birthday by the way to the website thank you very much yeah <laughs> so um five years ish yeah and 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 part of it was in the beginning i you know i'm a serial entrepreneur i wasn't like needing to make lots and lots of sales okay. it was something that i was doing it was an integral part of me making a living but it wasn't my primary living so i wasn't really thinking in terms of doing things in a bigger way mm -hmm. um it actually kind of came about because of a problem i was in a situation where i needed to come up with some money very quickly and I thought, what could I do this week to do $30,000 in sales? And I realized very quickly, it's easier to sell few things at a high price than a lot of things at a low price. What, what, because, why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's the old Dan Kennedy line. It's, it's easier to sell 10 things for $100,000 than it is to sell a million things for $1. Hmm. 
like it's easier to sell something for one dollar mm-hmm. but the number of people that you have to connect with in order to be successful is really really high so at the time i was in a circumstance where i'm guessing my hourly rate was somewhere between a hundred and a hundred and twenty five dollars okay And so if I'm in a situation where I want to come up with $30,000 at $100 each, and maybe I might sell five sessions to someone to get $500 from them, but that's a lot of people I need to say yes. Yeah. If I was making an offer that was $5,000, then I only needed to find six people to say yes. Yeah. And you said you had a month to come up with the money or that was, yeah, I I was, I was, yeah. And and my goal was to do it within a week, but I had a little more, I had more time than that, but that was my goal. I was just, you know, this kind of became this experiment. Like it was a need, but I was like, Oh, we could do. And what I realized was that in order to charge $5,000 for something, I needed to have a really clear promise. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be in a situation where you're just showing up and, you're afraid of heights. Like I needed to lay out a value proposition where you would go, this is interesting. So I ended up creating a four and a half month long program where over the course of the four months, we would be doing some assessment for you to name your goals, to create a strategic plan, and then clear the emotional block so you could take action. Okay. And what I learned in that process was two things. One, it was easier to communicate value when I had something that was big and we were shooting towards something. And the second was because I was speaking to that particular value, I became a super clear communicator because I wasn't talking about 84 different things. I was talking about one thing really specifically. And because I was talking about one thing specifically, they understood where I was coming from and I was much more of an expert because I was talking so hyper-specifically. Right. Um, So let's unpack that and add a little bit of detail. So that first iteration of that four-month program when you – sounds like you just kind of dreamed it up, right? I I literally was sitting in a Starbucks, and I was just going, boy, what could I make that I could sell for this much money? That's literally how it happened. So was – was there a, a focus on a particular audience or a type of person you hope to sell that to or just anybody? So in the beginning, I mean, I had been, so at that point, my website was five years old. My podcast was three years old. And so I probably had an email list of somewhere between, I would have to look at the numbers, but I'm guessing my email list was somewhere between 25 and 3,500 folks at that point. Okay. So that very first initial offering, I was just offering it to my list. And that was the only thing that I was doing. Right. Um, As I moved forward and I got even more specific about my offering, then it made it really easy for me to find places to offer. Because I wasn't offering a modality where people had to be disposed to tapping. Instead, I was now in a situation where I was going, okay, I solve this type of problem where can I find the people that have that type of problem? So it made my marketing efforts a lot easier because it narrowed the playing field of where I was looking to find people. Okay. In a moment, I'm going to want to circle back to how exactly you did that because that's one of those things that makes perfect sense. And then people say, okay, I want to do that. And then they go, well, I don't know what to do next. So we'll circle back to that in a minute, that how you found people. So, so you, um, you sold to your email list at first. What did that look like? 
Um, that looked like at that point, that looked like um, a thirty-five hundred word sales letter. Okay. Um, that I, I had spent because of my entrepreneurial sense, I'd spent a lot of time studying copywriting yes. and I love sending sales emails. Like mm-hmm. I love writing sales copy. And so it was just, it basically it was an email that was really, really long. And the call to action was, if you would like to apply to this program, fill out this form, and then we'll do an interview to see if you're a good fit. Mm-hmm. And made the offer in that fashion. So one email. What what, what were the results of that? Um, I think I did thirty six thousand dollars in sales. Okay, so you... yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I blew I blew right past my goal, and it was just kind of like this thing of like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely amazing. Why didn't I think of this before? Oh, that's terrific. So, um, I guess I'm asking for free advice here. Why Please, why yeah. do you love sales? And because uh, yeah. so many. So many of us, I'm just speaking us, self-employed folks, we've got some sort of baggage around it, right? Yeah. So what, have you always loved it? Why was so, it easy? So, 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 um, the very, I'll tell a story about the first digital product I ever sold, which will kind of underline all of this. Okay. So the very first digital product I ever sold was an audio that was seven minutes long. Huh. And I got the idea for the audio at 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday night. I was actually driving home. Okay. And so I had the idea in the car, but I couldn't do anything about it till I got home at 11 o'clock. By 10 o'clock the next day, someone in Japan had sent me $9.95 for this seven-minute audio. Uh-huh. And they were excited. Right. Like, it wasn't like I was taking money from them. But I had named a need. I had figured out a solution. And it was a small solution. Like, a seven-minute audio isn't going to change the world. But it was something that helped them. It was basically a, a morning routine audio using this protocol. So okay. it would be something to help people start their day on the right foot. Okay. And so... Because I was answering a need, and I just explained, hey, I bet this is a need you have. Here's a possible solution to that. And someone literally on the other side of the world said, yes, I want that, and I'm excited to get it. And so what I recognize is that when I am selling something of value, I am doing a service to the person I am selling to because they have a need of some sort. And because of my experience and expertise, I get to make their life better. And so as my friend Pamela Bruner always says, authentic sales is service. Hmm. Like I am I'm serving people when I sell them something mm-hmm. because I'm giving them something of value. And so when I think about it in those terms, then it makes it so much easier because I know that I am not tricking you out of your money. I'm not using some like mental sleight of hand to make you fall in my trance so I can steal your money. Right. I'm showing up and saying, you know what? Because of what I know about you, I bet you have this struggle right now and I have a way to make your life so much easier instead of you having to solve this problem or because the problem is so complicated, you can't solve it on your own. Let's work together to solve that problem and your life will be better. And so that's the reason why it's easy for me to sell and I love it is because I know that the people who are going to resonate with what I'm saying are going to be excited and the people who don't resonate with what I'm saying are going to ignore me and move on. Right. Okay. So was this for you and 
some sort of uh, you've got thirty six thousand dollars in the bank essentially. What did did that was that a light bulb moment of like oh this is different or I'm now a hyper focused specialist or was it a bit more of a gradual transition? So it was a bit more of a gradual trans transformation because what I saw in that wasn't that I was a specialist yet. What mm. I learned in that moment was when I do something that is big but is very focused, it's I am a much better communicator about that, which means it's easier for people to buy because they understand what I'm offering. Okay. So then as I moved forward, I started putting packages together around different problems to solve. You know, the tool set that I work with is really effective for weight loss. So I put together a weight loss program mm -hmm. and, and things like that. As time passed, what I found was I really enjoy working with entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy working with people who are trying to do something that they're good at their thing, but they're not good at being successful running a business around that thing. And so the specialization came just because I enjoyed that population. And I, and I want to go back to something I said very at the very beginning. I told you that uh, what I say is I help small business owners to eliminate self-sabotage. 40% of my clients are not small business owners. What has happened is because I am speaking so clearly with a specific value proposition, when someone hears me that isn't in my target market, small business owners, but they hear part of that message that resonates with them, they go, oh, would you be willing to work with me? And so I'm able to use the same tools in a slightly different way with someone else. But because I specialized, it forced me to be so much more descriptive with what I'm saying. So I start resonating with people who would be right to work with me, but are not inside of my quote unquote target market. Yeah, I'm um, I don't mean to sound blase, but I am so not surprised to hear that because yeah. I, you know, I've seen this over and over again. They ignore the filter because they're so dazzled by the clarity or the confidence that you have in your messaging. This, I assume some of those 40% of the people who are outside the you know red line you've drawn have never met you. And so they're responding to clarity in writing or maybe they've heard your podcast. Am I, yeah, and, am I right about and, that? And so, and so what they're doing is they're responding to clarity about me describing problems. So like, right. when I, like when I write sales copy and I have eight bullets in a bullet list somewhere, I want three bullets to resonate with every single person who reads that. Uh -huh. And I have no idea which three are going to resonate with you. But if you read eight bullets and three of them resonate deeply with you, you don't even notice the other five bullet points because there's three times in sentences I have said something and you're nodding your head going, oh, my gosh, Gene totally gets me. Mm -hmm. And that is enough for them to then want to engage in a conversation to see how we fit together. I mean, one of the things that I often, I always tell my clients when I'm teaching them these types of concepts is that, you know, the people we market to and the people we work with are not the same people. But by choosing a particular group of people to market to, it makes us more effective in our communication. And most of the people are going to be inside of that. But we also get the opportunity to work with other people that sometimes people are really scared of specialization because they think they're shutting themselves off. 
right? So let's go back to, at some point you start to say to yourself or have this sense, wow, the entrepreneurs are my, what? What comes after that? My favorite clients, my best clients? They're the folks that I enjoy working with. Like I really get jazzed helping someone create something that they love so they can do what they think is their passion or their calling. Right. So uh, maybe this is very personality dependent. I, I, I've seen a sort of spectrum out there. People who, when they have that recognition, they can immediately go with it. There's not much friction between saying, okay, I've worked with 10 different types of clients. I, I think I enjoy the entrepreneurs the most. I'm just going to double down on entrepreneurs. And then there's the other end of the spectrum that says, well, I don't know. What if I haven't had enough experience? What if I've not seen a representative sample of entrepreneurs? What if this, what if that? Where on that spectrum do you tend to fall, Gene? Um, I tend to fall on the end of... so. I, I, so I am actually a computer programmer by training. Um, a million years ago, I coded in <laughs> C and C++, and, and that is my training. Nice. And, I, and, and so I am used to doing – and back in the days when you like had to send stuff to the compiler and then it would send you back an error log. Right. Um, and so since we weren't getting immediate feedback, like we were literally on these old Unix machines doing things in text editors, what you learned to do was you learned to write three or four lines of code, compile it, see if it broke. If it didn't, you wrote three or four lines of code, you compiled it. Unfortunately, it wasn't like hours of compiling. It came back really quickly. Right. But I learned an iterative, iterative process. Yeah. And so when I am trying something new, I always approach it as an experiment. This product I'm going to launch, this is an experiment. Mm. This podcast I'm going to create, this is an experiment. And because it's an experiment, there is there's no failed experiments. There are experiments that do not give you the results you expected. And so for me, I am, I'm not like I'm going to double down or that I'm scared. I'm like, this is an interesting idea. Let's try it and see what happens. Got it. Um, so I've ne I don't write things in stone. It's written in pencil, and I'm going to go try this thing. Even when I choose a, a specialty, like I think it's the specialty, I'm going to go try it, and I'm going to constantly be taking feedback as I'm doing it to see if I am good at it, if it's structured properly, if it actually lights me up the way that I thought it would. It's one thing to do this once a week. It's another thing to do it for 40 hours a week. Like So I'm taking all of that feedback in as I'm doing it. So I am methodical and thoughtful in deciding what my experiments are going to be. But when it's time to do an experiment, it's just that. Like there's, there's no outcome that is going to be bad. It's just information that's going to help me to figure out what the next step is. So you're getting the sense that you enjoy this population of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. what's, what's the first experiment you did to get more data about that? that hypothesis that maybe this is where you focus. Well, and, and so it kind of happened by accident. So as I'm offering this kind of general program of naming your goals and clearing the things out of the way, I had a whole bunch of entrepreneurs just show up for that. Mm -hmm. Like that was the type of problem they were trying to solve. And for right. whatever reason, they resonated with my message, even though I wasn't speaking that specifically. Sure. So then I realized that I could offer the exact same thing and just change the name of it and make it feel like it's a more specialized program. Okay. 
like I, years ago I wrote, and I learned this years ago, I wrote a, a stress management book. And at one point I had five versions of the stress management book. And the five versions were exactly the same, except for the cover and the first paragraph of the book. So sort, sort of like the, the for dummies, I mean, not quite like that, but still. Yeah, I mean, yeah. literally every page after the first page was exactly the same because there's okay. only so many ways that you can manage stress. Right. But stress management for teachers, stress management for parents, stress management for busy professionals. Like the book immediately sounded more specific and useful because it was targeted at that market. Right. And so when I was creating this program, I said, well, let's just, let me just, I'm doing, I'm going to do the program exactly the same way, but lots of entrepreneurs have shown up. So I'm now just going to try it and explicitly talk about it as if this is a program for entrepreneurs. This is a program for small business owners. So I took my experience of learning it was something that worked, didn't change the program, just changed the way that I talked about it. So how, how did that go when you ran that first experiment? Uh, essentially so really a, na well. a naming change, essentially. Yeah. So, so it was a naming change. And then it was also like when we're talking about, so again, so we're talking about the specifics. Yeah. So there is the specifics of not taking action and there is the specifics of not having a clear vision. So that, that, that's one level of specificity. Another level of specificity is, you know how it's like to not take actions where you are asking for sales or you're trying to get clients to return stuff on time or whatever. And so basically I was talking about the exact same thing, but the examples I was giving was all specific to the people I now wanted to work with. So everything I was saying just became more specific. Right. So let's jump around on the timeline here. Here we are roughly five, six years after yeah. what we were just talking about with this first experiment. Mm -hmm. What do you know about entrepreneurs now that is, uh, for you, a greater depth of insight into them or helps you be better able to produce results for them? What have you Absolutely. learned in those five yeah. years that's specific yep. to entrepreneurs? So there are two things. One is, I think my... I don't know if technical is the right word, but my technical expertise on what it, what you need to do in order to be successful as self-employed. Um, I've worked with lots of folks like that. I've been self-employed for 21 years. So I know the right steps and the right tasks to do. So that, that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is because of the work that I've... So in my mind, there are four reasons why we don't take action. We don't know what we want. We don't know how to do it. It's painful to take the action. It's painful to be successful. Hmm. And I discovered that by going through hours and hours of old client sessions mm -hmm. where I was starting to hear them talk about the patterns. And I literally started modeling the problems that started showing up. And I started modeling the tools that I was using to help solve those problems. What so, is, can you explain for my audience, what does modeling mean in this context? So modeling in this context is um, I looked at, um, so like the four things that I just shared with you, they right. don't know what they want. They, so that's a model. So I was, I was seeing the same type of problem over and over and over again. And so I started creating a hierarchy of these problems. Got it. Okay. So like, sort of systematizing what you were learning. Absolutely. Systematizing okay. what I was learning and systematizing what were the common problems people showed up with. Ah. Okay. And then the second thing I started systematizing was what were the tools that I was 
unconsciously or subconsciously reaching for to solve those particular problems. Because basically I was being trained by my clients. I would try something, it would work. So I would try it again, it would work. And so I just naturally started going towards the things that were useful. Mm -hmm. And so then I went and I named all of those pieces parts. So it wasn't just me instinctually doing things. I was like, oh, this is a tool I use a lot for this. This is a tool I use a lot for that. Mm -hmm. And so because I have this really specific hierarchy of understanding of the types of problems and what the root causes are of those problems, like I will have a client describe a sales problem. Okay. So, so lots of folks have just so much trouble sales. Mm -hmm. Well, again, being a sleazy salesperson. Um, being afraid that I'm going to promise too much and not deliver. Like the, the problems of why we're afraid of sales are not difficult. If you say no, it's going to feel like you're judging me and my self-worth because I've put my heart into this and you're not buying, therefore you think I suck. Like these are common things so that when I'm helping a client solve that problem, like, oh my gosh, Gene, you are so brilliant. You helped me to understand that so clearly. And in the back of my mind is, the specifics of your problem are unique because it's the details of your business. Mm -hmm. The reason the problem exists is the reason the problem exists. Like it's human nature. You are very human struggling with sales things. Therefore it's easy for me to understand and to see into that quickly. So because of that expertise, I'm going to help you to solve the problem much faster. Like the things I provide, I am one, I'm not inside of your head so I'm not dealing with the emotional swirl that you have. Two, I have expertise around the problems that you are experiencing. Therefore, I'm going to identify them quicker. And three, I have a tool set that will help solve those problems really fast. And so that's what sets me apart in this area is I can help you to identify the problems really quickly and help you to alleviate the problems really quickly because of my experience and my expertise with my tool set. Yeah. So looking back over that, let's call it a five-year learning curve. Yeah. What, you know, if you sort of uh, verbally sketch out the learning curve, you know, what it was a lot of, um, you know, painful, difficult learning at first, was it sort of evenly distributed? So learning what? What what were you especially what can we talk about what I was learning? Yeah, learning you know, the gather, accumulating this expertise, seeing mm -hmm. these patterns in your clients. I am wanting to get a sense of was it a two year learning curve and then after that it sort of was diminishing returns or yeah. So, so really what it was, was it was a couple of years and I, I wish I knew off the top of my head how many, but it was a number of years of just doing the thing. Right. And then literally, like I said, I modeled the stuff. Mm -hmm. I literally thought one day, okay, what am I doing? Like I need to understand better what I'm doing because if I'm able to name the things that I do well, then I'm going to be more successful. And I literally took two months and just studied myself. Mm. And just, like I said, listened to hours and hours of my old client sessions mm -hmm. just to hear what was going on. So then once I kind of had this framework, what I did was through the content I was creating through the podcast or the articles I was writing, I took these various ideas and I tried to teach them. And I find that whenever I have to teach a very specific concept, I gain a deeper understanding of it 
because it's gone from something that's a little abstract in my head mm-hmm. to something that I have to articulate really clearly so my audience understands it. Yeah. And oftentimes in that process, either through an interview, through just teaching on a podcast or writing an article, at the end of it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. And so over the course of the next couple of years, as I took those pieces and I started teaching them as pieces, I was sharpening my tools basically is what I was doing is, you know, just taking that knife and just grinding it down until it became sharper and sharper and more precise because I was using it consciously versus unconsciously. And I was teaching it. So I even had to understand it more deeply than just doing it well. And so those two things added up to even more specific expertise. That's great. So what did your first crack at trying to teach these newly developed concepts look like? They just look like articles and podcasts. Okay. Like, I mean, it really was just that simple. It's like, here, here is a simple six-step process to figure out why you're afraid of doing that thing that's been on your to-do list for four days. Right. Um, yeah, it was just that simple. So you were publishing these to your, to your own audience, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, just okay. putting them out there to my own audience. Yep. How, about how quickly did you see some response from that? Some like, oh, wow, this is new, or this seems like I want to learn yeah. more. So I was, I was really fortunate um, because like a, a significant part of success is timing. And oftentimes we don't have control over that timing. Um, so when I started writing articles 11 years ago, People like nine months in, I can remember getting this email of, and this is like early days of content marketing, right? Where someone sent me an email saying, "Can you please start selling stuff so I can buy it?" Like this was a <laughs> hobby at this point, right? And they were so unused to having access to all of these free resources. Um, I, I've been podcasting on this topic for over nine years. I've been podcasting for eleven years, but this topic for nine years. So for the first seven and a half years of my podcast, I was the only person who was consistently creating content in that way. Right. And so I was in some ways, like I hope to believe that part of my differentiation is I'm a good teacher and I was sharing stuff that was useful. Right. But the other part of my differentiation is consistency. You know, my, my website now sits somewhere between 775 and 800 free resources on the website. Right. And that's 11 years of content. Like I couldn't sit down and create that this weekend. And there's a lot of things on there. I don't even remember creating. Like I go back and reread my archives. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a really good thing. I'm glad I taught that thing. I should reteach that thing because that was such a good idea. Um, And so part of it was I was just, I was content marketing at a time where there was less clutter and in a landscape where I was consistent. And so the beginning parts of my audience came from that. Right. Um, now, I mean, we live in a very different world. And so the, my audience acquisition looks different now than it did back then. Um, but that's how it started. Great. I'm going to circle back to that. Um, and in fact, that's been on my notes for about 20 minutes in this conversation is uh, yeah. I want to end up there, but let's, let's fill in a few more details. So you, you started to realize with having a focus on a type of customer 
a vertical, an audience, call mm -hmm. it what you like, it would be possible to find people to go where yeah. they are. Yeah. How, tell, tell me a bit about how you started doing that, say, five, six years ago or whenever you started yeah. doing that. So I just, I, I literally just thought of the people whose problems I want to solve, where do they gather? Um, and then I just tried to put myself in those places. Okay. Um, if it was, if it was an online place, I went and I participated in discussion groups. Mm -hmm. If it was a place where content was going out to them, like magazines and online magazines, I created content. If it was conferences, I went and did booth spaces or I tried to stand on stages. Um, I literally just thought about where do, where do entrepreneurs and small business owners gather? Then the more sophisticated version of it, I then started thinking about where are the ones that actually have lots of money gather? Mm -hmm. Because it's always easier to sell to someone when the price point is not a shock to them. Mm. Um, and I think the, the single best, one of the single best marketing things I do um, here in New York City is I am a member of four different art museums. Mm -hmm. And I just show up to all the receptions. And when you are at a reception at an art gallery for the new opening, everybody who is standing in the room has donated at least $250 to the museum. Mm. And so if you've donated $250 to a museum, you probably have some more money somewhere. Right. And I don't go in like trying to market. I just, I just, I try and be the most interested person in every room that I walk into. Right. And so I just, you know, we're just looking at the thing and we start talking about the art. And because we're stupid Americans, one of the first four questions we ask anybody when we meet them is, what do you do for a living? So what do you say to that question when someone asks you that? Yeah, I say I, I help small business owners to eliminate self-sabotage. And fortunately, I, that tagline is pithy enough. They're like, oh, really? What does that mean? Right. And so then I just kind of just kick into client stories and I start telling client stories. And the instant they get super interested, I say, you know, it's Friday night. We're drinking wine. We're standing in an art gallery. We really shouldn't be talking about work. Give me your email address. Mm -hmm. Let me send you an email right now with my contact information. And when I get back to the office on Monday morning, let's set up a time where we can have a longer conversation about this. Mm. And so it's, it's a real soft sell. Like I'm literally saying we shouldn't be talking business right now. There's a time and place for that. And so hopefully I've left them really intrigued and they're ready for a conversation. And I found lots of clients that way. I would like to point out to the folks at home listening that you do something I recommend folks do on the homepage of their website. There's always this question when you're faced with, okay, I'm writing a, putting together a website I've got a blank text editor in front of me. What do I talk about? Mm -hmm. uh, my suggestion is talk about your client success stories first. That's exactly what you're saying you do in these real life conversations. I, I do. And there's two reasons for that. One is the social proof of talking about the fact that I'm really good at what I do. Yeah. The other is it's a much easier way to give them a narrative sense of the work that I do. Because right. when I say I help eliminate self-sabotage and they go, well, how do you do that? The answer isn't this whacking tapping modality. Like you're trying to understand the process. Right. And, and if you'd like, it might be useful. I, would, I can share with you the story I most commonly share in this setting. That'd be great. So the story I most commonly share is I was working with a college professor 
And the college professor wanted to create a consulting firm based on what she researched on and what she taught in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And 20 years, college professor had been teaching three times a week. The instant she stepped into a business setting, she couldn't speak in public. Mm. She was crippled by it. She stumbled. She spoke quietly. She skipped out on a lot of things. Well, it turned out that when she was young, when she was seven or eight, she had been assaulted by a family member. And mm. because it was a family member, no one believed her. Right. And so she had the subconscious belief that said, when I tell adults important things, they don't believe me. Mm. Teaching in the classroom had always been easy because they were quote unquote kids. Right. So when we were able to uncover this, we then were able to heal that particular trauma. And all of a sudden she could speak confidently in her expertise in business settings and her business took off. That's great. And so you, what you'll hear in that is it's just a narrative. It's a narrative arc of the transformation. Right. We identified who she was. We identified the problem she faced. We identified how I figured out what the problem was. And then we identified I solved the problem. And so at that point, it doesn't matter how I figured out what the problem was. And it doesn't matter how I solved the problem. It's a believable narrative arc. So they understand what I do and they can see themselves. Oh, there are actions I want to take. I'm afraid of maybe Gene will help me figure out what's in my way. And that's the reason why 40% of my clients aren't small business owners. They're just people who self-sabotage themselves, which is only the entire human population. <laughs> right. And, and, and so, and so because I'm able to tell that story in that way, they immediately see themselves in that place. They're like, oh, this is what the process looks like. Not what are the tools that we use? And they can see themselves inside of that. And they can see themselves on the other side with whatever success they want to have. It avoids all, almost all of these potential landmines of, you know, geeking out about the tool set or uh, trying to be assertive in describing how good you are without yeah. coming across as bragging. All Absolutely. These, it just, these trip us all up. And my suggestion is, well, just don't do those things. Tell a good story about Well, and, and, and the thing that you said there first, you know, geeking out about our tool set. Right. So whatever we do, we are computer programmers. We create small businesses. We make widgets. Like all day long, we do that thing that we are expert at. And so that's the thing that sets us apart. That's the thing that makes us great. That is what is unique about us. But the people we're talking to don't care about that yet. They care about their problem. Right. And when we become marketers for ourselves, we have to shift gears and we have to take our practitioner hat off, whatever it is we practice, and we have to put on a marketing hat. And it makes sense that you want to talk about your tools because your tools are awesome. And particularly if they're geeky tools that you love, they're even more awesome because they're fun. And that's the thing we want to talk about. And when we're talking with our peers, that's an awesome thing to geek out about. When we're talking to potential clients, the only thing that matters first is their pain and their problem. And we have to talk about that first. Here, here. Okay. So earlier, Gene, you mentioned that there's a sort of lifestyle business uh, quality to mm -hmm. what you're doing. Yeah. But if you look at your website, well, actually, so if you look at your website, 
people are going to be like, wow, um, you know, you're on podcast episode 300 and something, 321, it looks like. And that doesn't count the 55 bonus episodes that are sprinkled in there because I didn't know how to number podcasts. So yeah. <laughs> and the, I don't know, 400 some articles. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of content there. Yeah. So uh, like realistically, when you look back over this, how much time, I don't know, per week, per month, however you want to describe it, did you put into... Uh, working on your business or marketing yourself? Okay, so for me, there are two types of marketing that I do. Mm -hmm. There is market hunting and there is market gardening. Market hunting is any task that I am doing that is going to lead to a direct ask. Mm -hmm. And that direct ask might be you buying something from me, hiring me, or that direct ask might be, let's have a strategy session where I can pitch you. I don't right. call it, I don't say that, but that's my intention. Right. Market gardening is any activity that I am nurturing my audience so that I can make an ask in the future because our relationship has deepened. Right. And so, you know, pod, anything that is content marketing, anything that is social media, that sort of stuff. And so I have in my mind this proportion that I invest between those two things. Um, if I have less than two months of income booked, I am spending 80% of my marketing time hunting and I'm spending 20% of my marketing time gardening. Now, these are made up percentages, but this is just in my mind to help keep it straight. Right. If I have three months on the books, contract, sign, credit card numbers in my system, then I'm now spending 35% um, of my time gardening and I'm spending 65% of my time hunting. Mm -hmm. If I have four months, it's 50-50. If it's five months, I'm now spending 65% of my time gardening and 35% of my time hunting. So like, that's how I allocate my marketing time. When it comes to marketing my business, um, Anywhere between 15 and 20% of my time is specifically marketing in some capacity. So basically one full day a week, not that I just do Monday as marketing, yeah. but for me, one full day a week is basically marketing. So I, I have started, I'm not a sports fan at all, but I started using a sports analogy to describe yeah. this. And in American football, this is having an amazing ground game. This is consistently mm -hmm. moving Moving things forward, yep. just inch by inch, play by play, week by week, month by month, year by year, right? And I really hope, uh, well, first of all, uh, normally I would ask at the end, but if it's tappingqna.com, I'll link to that in the show notes. That's one place, maybe that's not the only place, Gene, but that's one place where the folks at home could see the result of a 10-year mm -hmm. ground game. And, 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 it, and, it's, it, and it's a circumstance where... Um, let's see here. I'll just do the math real quick. Um, basically, so it, 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 at 11 years, 775 pieces of content, that's one piece of content every five days. Nice. I hadn't thought so, to do that. Yeah. You know, so, so, the, and, and that's, that's, that's really how it started was initially I just wrote when I felt like it again, I started as a hobbyist. I mm -hmm. didn't, I didn't offer a pro product until nine months into it. And I didn't work with clients for another six months after that. When I first started writing about the protocol, I was just writing about it because I was interested about it. So once I started thinking about it as a business, I went, okay, what is it? What does a consistent production schedule look like? Mm -hmm. 
And so for a really long time, I was creating an article a week and a podcast a week. Um, now I just do typically just create one resource a week mm -hmm. just because the library is big enough that I'm okay with that. Right. But again, I mean, with the help of, you know, I'm super dyslexic with the help of a good editor, uh, I can knock out an article in about 45 minutes. Okay. Um, and so, you know, once every five days investing an hour of time, that's what happens. You know, the, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Yeah. The second best time is today. Yeah. And, you know, if you're in a situation where, you know, even if you were in a situation where every 10 days you created one piece of content for the next year, you would have 36 pieces of content. Yeah. And that's 36 times you get to demonstrate your expertise. It's 36 times you get to refine your thinking and become sharper at what you do. It's 36 times to start seeing what is your system of organization? Because you can look back over those articles or podcasts or videos or whatever they are and go, oh, look, I didn't even realize this was a theme there. And I mean, it's August is tomorrow. I, I don't know about you, but New Year's Eve felt like yesterday. Yeah. And the fact that we've been barreling through seven months, and if you were creating a piece of content once every 10 days, you'd have 20 pieces of content since New Year's Eve. So along the way, surely it has gotten challenging to keep up that pace. What, what have been the, you know, the main one or two challenges to staying consistent? Well, so, so the, the, the main challenge that people run into is, and I, I, one of the reasons it's less of a challenge for me is, so let's pretend you were creating a piece of content every 10 days since the first of the year. Mm -hmm. You'd hear that and you go, oh my gosh, I have to have 20 good ideas. Mm -hmm. And you don't. You need to have five good ideas. Because every single time I teach something, I teach it four times. Mm. I might teach it as a case study. I might teach it as a process. I might give a personal anecdote because if it takes me 45 minutes to write an article, it's going to take you three and a half to read it. Mm -hmm. So your level of engagement is significantly less than my level of engagement with that content. So I can teach you the exact same idea again three weeks from now, and it's going to feel new and fresh because you're getting a little more depth because it's your second time bumping into it. Right. And I can teach you the same concept three weeks later. And again, it becomes a little more depth for you. And so the problem most people run into is coming up with ideas. The thing that I do is twofold. One, what I just said to you. The other thing is um, I, have, I have separated idea generation and content creation as two separate tasks. Mm. So I'm never, like you said earlier, staring at a blank text editor going, boy, what am I going to write about right. today? Right. Instead, I'm in a circumstance where, and I'm touching them right now, I have a pile of note cards that sit next to me. And all day when I'm working with clients or I'm trying to solve problems myself and an idea comes to mind, I'm like, oh, that would be a great thing to share with my audience. And I'll jot down a note. And then at the end of the day, I take all of those ideas and I put them into this, this Excel spreadsheet that has all of my content ideas. So when it comes time for me to create something new, I'm now looking at this list of things that I'm constantly populating and I might choose one of them or I'll read through the list and two of them will kind of synthesize together. And it's like, oh yeah, that's an article. I can now explain that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now all of us essentially have a smartphone glued to our body most of the time. I, I bet the, <laughs> when I am, when I'm wandering around the city, the person I am most likely to send an email to is myself. Right. I get yeah. an idea, pull it out, send the email. It's in the inbox. The next morning when I'm managing my inbox, I just move the ideas into my content creation space. Yeah. Yeah. I just was looking. I have a note that has about 20,000 words worth of ideas. Yeah, or stuff. absolutely. And it was never work to create it because it happened, you know, one, uh, you know, 50 characters at a time with just jotting an idea down. Absolutely. And, and, that, and it becomes so easy because it's, you know, the other the thing is, if, if I were to ask someone to explain what they do, like, ah, because they're trying to explain everything that's in their head. Mm -hmm. But if I ask you a specific question about your expertise, you're going to have a hyper-focused answer because it's inside your expertise and you know exactly what I need to do. That's the reason why the website is called Tapping Q&A. When I started, I wasn't very good at writing opening paragraphs to my articles, so I just made up a question. Mm -hmm. And eventually, my audience started asking the questions, and I was answering theirs. But at the beginning, I was just like, how do I make this routine? Yeah. My first paragraph is done. Great. I can explain to you how to make a tool set routine every single day because I understand the neurology of habit. That's great. You know? And so by, by thinking in those terms, it again, makes me the more, to go back to our themes here, the more specific I get about anything, the more effective of a communicator I am. So I'm going to ask one more question and then we're going to wrap this show to keep keep on schedule here. So Gene, you mentioned that you started content marketing in the wild, wild west, early days of content mm -hmm. marketing. Now audience members find you differently how do they find you now or what's changed? Yeah. So, so I basically have three paths for people to finding me one, because my content library is so big, organic traffic, Yes. you know, people are asking questions somewhere. If you're asking questions around my specialty, you're going to find my website. Um, the second is, um, there is not a microphone or a stage that I don't love. Um, <laughs> If I can get in front of a group of people, even if it's four, if I can have a conversation like this, like I am constantly, constantly, constantly looking for opportunities where I can talk in front of a group of people. Because even in 15 minutes, the ability for me to create no like and trust with an audience is so much faster than something they see online. Mm -hmm. So even if they've just had 15 minutes with me and I'm effectively getting their email address so they're on my list, they're going to engage with my content in a much deeper way. Um, and then the third thing, and it's just the reality of the world we live in, it's paid traffic. Mm -hmm. You know, that just is, is a reality of where we are. So, you know, using Facebook ads and stuff like that. Sure. Well, Gene, thank you. This has been a fascinating and generous conversation. I am really oh. grateful that you took the time to, to answer all my nosy questions and, and teach uh, a bit about your experience to my audience. Absolutely. Uh, I, and like, like I said, I love sharing. Well, where might folks go to find out more? Um, where would you send them? Yeah, the main website is the best place to go, tappingqna.com. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's a really great free 10-part guide on how to use the tapping tool set to eliminate self-sabotage. Um, the great thing about the freebie that is there is I literally about four and a half years ago just went through my entire archive and pulled 10 of the best pieces and strung them together into a course where you'll get a piece every single day. 
That's great. Well, Gene, thank you again for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.